Hey guys, Steve here, Potent Ponics. Today we're gonna to talk about gr 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 growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. data i know uh at least once a month i'm sending him some pictures or trading pictures or documenting something i think he might find interesting and sending it off to him so um definitely excited to have him on um all righty uh let's pick uh super lemonade we're gonna pick you because we're about to launch a lemonade in oklahoma super lemonade uh if you want to email me at potentponics at gmail.com um we will get you your silicate. Thanks a lot. All right, um, Matthew, take it away. Uh, get us one more for potassium silicate. What's up? Get us one more person for potassium silicate. Oh, well, we'll do it on the next break. All right, that'll work. All right. Let me, uh, I think he's muted there. I see. Can you hear me now? There we go. Now we can hear you. Yeah, well, I appreciate the compliment. Thank you very much. Um, I think I'll have to share my screen, right? Is that not the case? Hello? Yep, you should be able to. Yeah. Let me know if you have a problem there. We'll, we'll get you straightened out. There we go. There we go. All right, you can all see this? Yep. Cool. So my name is Matthew Gates. I am an integrated pest management specialist and I have been for the past 10 years actually. What a year to uh, end the decade on, huh? Well, um, I will agree with uh, my friend here that um, he does often have really great pictures to send me. and. Um, uh, for that reason, he inspired me to talk about one of the pests that I will be going over, which are just moth larvae in general. Anyways, um, here I'm going to talk about some sort of basic and advanced aspects of integrated pest management and also bring in some aspects that are relevant to aquaponics in particular. Um, and then also we're going to talk about some of the pests that I see both in aquaponics areas and just kind of generally, especially this time of the season. So it's a little bit of a seasonally uh, inclined iteration of this presentation. You can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at SyncAngel. And you can also find me um, as Xenthanol on YouTube. And I have a bunch of integrated pest management videos about various pests and evolution and cannabis ecology and its origins and all this sort of thing. So if you're interested in that information, you can check out my YouTube channel. But here's the bottom line up front. So I like to characterize the different kinds of integrated pest management sort of techniques or actions that you can make in a sort of like groups. Usually I put them into five groups that I normally name and sometimes I'll change them a little bit and I'll get into that. But essentially they're the biological, the chemical, the cultural, the genetic and the mechanical types of controls. Biological controls are kind of self-explanatory. They are living agents. Uh, generally, I also like to put viruses into this category as well, although there aren't a whole lot of viruses that are used in integrated pest management, but that might be changing in the future. I know that's a scary subject right now, but there are some beneficial viruses, plant viruses in particular, and mycoviruses that infect um, pathogens of plants that are fungi. And so there is some possibility for using them as sort of a natural uh, bio control agent, I suppose. Uh, 
although some definitions of life don't include them. There's also chemical controls. Those can be synthetic or they can be naturally occurring. Of course, many synthetic pesticides that are used um, in agriculture cannot be used in cannabis or should not be used in cannabis. Um, a lot of times that's because they are, they are uh, systemic. And it's important to know that there are different kinds of um, pesticides. Some of them are systemic. So that means that when they get into the plant, they actually move through the tissues. They can move up and down um, to various degrees, it depends on the compound. And that's the reason why people don't like to use them in cannabis. Um, there's also regulations against this, of course. There's also translaminar uh, chemical pesticides. These are pesticides that do get into the tissue and don't stay just outside of the tissue, but they don't actually travel throughout the plant like a systemic pesticide would. And then you have uh, pesticides that don't have either of those sort of um, effects and they simply stay as residue on the plant. Maybe they last a long time, maybe they last a very short time, maybe they're very photoreactive and so they decay in sunlight or ultraviolet radiation or something like this. You've also got cultural controls. Cultural controls are sort of like your procedural controls. They're how you go about doing things, your SOPs and that sort of a thing. And whether you're growing on a small scale or a commercial scale, um, this is an extremely important aspect because in my opinion, most of the controls that people like use or, or actually use to affect change within their crop um, are these cultural controls and they're ten they tend to be very cost effective. They might be something as simple as changing how you harvest or changing um, one of the products you use to, or, or whatever process you use to like cure the final product. Or in the case of cultivation, maybe it's how you uh, prune your plant, or maybe it's how you train it or something like this. Or maybe it's the fact that you have caulked up a bunch of holes in your um, facility or your garage or wherever you're growing so that pests can't get in or something like this. There are also genetic controls I like to call. Um, usually you don't have uh, very much effect on this once you're actually growing plants and crop. This is more of a thing that is um, affected by your pedigree, your breeding, um, the genotype of the plant sort of, and its resistances and susceptibilities on a genetic level. For example, um, hemp, uh, a lot of, so in some cases, uh, plants that don't have uh, the ability to produce THC, cannabis plants in particular, uh, some of them have a gene cassette, uh, a sort of a string of DNA that, or, or genes rather, that are, um, that, that have the THC uh, synthase genes that, that are important for that pathway to create that cannabinoid, that metabolite. But they also, um, they also lack certain resistance genes to fungi. And um, a company called Medicinal Genomics is look, has been looking into this and has published information and research on this. And so it turns out that plants that lack this gene cassette are naturally more susceptible to certain fungal pathogens. So it's just a thing to consider. Um, you know, this is true for other kinds of crops as well. Basically, all kinds of plants have genetic susceptibilities and weaknesses that pests and other sorts of uh, environmental conditions can have a negative or positive effect on. And then finally, we have mechanical controls. Those are things that are going to be based on physical destruction of the organism. Uh, although a lot of people are used to thinking of like chemical like interactions and that sort of a thing, things like ultraviolet radiation cause uh, physical damage by like disrupting the, the genetic makeup. It's one of the reasons why sunburns can be so bad. It's one of the reasons why skin cancer happens in the way that it does. It's why melanin is so helpful for um, uh, availing yourself of that and getting rid of that problem. Uh, a lot of insects you might have noticed will, and mites for that matter, will feed on the undersides of leaves. And there's also a predator sort of uh, evasion behavioral reason for this, but also it's because of the UV radiation. A lot of organisms are sensitive to UV radiation in some way. It's one of the first things we had to sort of adapt to when we came out of the ocean, so to speak. There are other mechanical controls like literally just squishing and killing a, uh, a pest, right? The I in IPM is your integration. Um, so you, the key is to be able to integrate all of these different factors together so that you 
put as many advantages on your side and levy as many disadvantages to the to the pest side, whether they're an arthropod like an insect or a mite, or whether or not they're a fungal pathogen or a bacterial pathogen. You have to <clears throat> you have to consider all of the possibilities when it comes to uh, getting rid of pests and preventing them, both in a curative way, but also in a prophylactic way. In this example, I have uh, biological control. We have a predatory mite, Embolsius swirskii. We also have um, a yellow sticky card as a mechanical trap, which uh, generally these small ones are, are primarily used to tell what kind of pests you're dealing with. They're not actually meant to be um, very good in the way of actual control. But this is sort of an example. You can get sticky cards and rollers that are, that are larger and kind of sticky tape that you can apply as well. There's also mesh screens and barriers, which are another kind of mechanical control because they, they don't cause any lethal damage, but they prevent things like moths and um, large insects and even small insects in the case of Thrips screen, which I am a big advocate for as a mechanical barrier to keep things from coming in. That, that gets rid of most of your problems on the onset. You also have crop scouting, which is incredibly important, and I would call that a cultural control. It's a process or standard by which you go about doing things, and it's important, and I train people on this, um, uh, how they go about it, how they take samples, what are they looking for, both in the case of pests or their damage, or abiotic factors like wilting or um, or problems with like the piping in your facility or that sort of thing. There are non-biological aspects of crop scouting as well to consider, but mainly from the, from the bio, biological side. You are tracking whether the beneficials are being effective as well if you're using any. You're checking for signs of like parasitation or predation or that sort of thing. And just generally, if you see those organisms after you release, if you don't and you're using certain chemicals or maybe you're applying something else, you might consider, well, maybe I'm, I'm negatively affecting my biological controls. And then you can just simply remove pests as well, which I would also call a mechanical. In this iteration, I have a mechanical heavy um, IPM sort of example here. But there are many other ways to go about IPM and every context is different. I, do can, I, do already, I did already give uh, an example of different biological controls. I have two videos down here. I'll probably not play them, but there are two biocontrol examples here. On the left, we have uh, Cryptolamus montrosary, which is the mealybug destroyer. It's a lady beetle that actually feeds on mealybugs, not on aphids, for example. In fact, the lady beetle group is um, very varied. Some of them are even herbivores. Other ones feed on fungi but many of them feed on uh, insects in particular. You've also got your entoma pathogens. So that includes like Bouveria bassiana or Bacillus subtilis or Bacillus thuringiensis um, and it's different isolates. So biocontrols can be microarthropods. They can also be larger things like birds and lizards that might exist in your natural area. But um, they also don't necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily as controllable or commercially available. Uh, moving on to chemical controls, I'm giving here examples of uh, different classes by how the, how the pesticide or what kinds of things a pesticide affects, but pesticides are often categorized in uh, chemical classes, so whether or not the chemical agent uh, utilizes or whether the chemical agent is a kind of structure or comes from a certain place. Um, yeah, let me check the chat real quick. It's not. Oops. Okay. Um, so we have like fungicidal agents like mycobutanol, which of course you should not use in cannabis, but I bring it up here so that people know exactly what you know. It what, here's what the name is. Uh, if anyone calls it Myclo or refers to it like that, you actually know what I'm talking about or know what this is exactly. And as a systemic fungicidal agent that you shouldn't be using, but many people have used for powdery mildews and fungi and that kind of thing. I mean, it works, but also it gets into your plant systemically and that's not good for you. 
Uh, I've also seen people test hot for it if they just happen to be directly next to an orchard from overspray. Uh, One thing I wanted to add on that. That's a really good thing to add, actually, is that you might be doing everything right. This is also true for other other pests, for that matter, for, for both the fungus you're going to get and also for other pests and biocontrols, for that matter. There is, they don't care about your borders. There is spray drift. There is um, a great example where a few years ago, um, with the uh, sort of uh, dicamba-ready, this herbicide-ready soybean, lot there were people who were applying dicamba to them and they were fine but because it was a really hot day the pesticide volatized and drifted across so they didn't even have wind drift in the beginning but because of the heat and the wind pickup the compound volatized moved through a bunch of soybeans that weren't herbicide ready and just destroyed them all defoliated all of them it was like a a large acreage a large amount um, of damage and acreage damage so Um, it does happen. There's also things like silver nanoparticles for that matter, or sulfur, which is a totally natural uh, element. Uh, Usually in the wettable sulfur applications people use, you shouldn't be using that in flour, but you know, you can use it for various um, situations in veg or kind of around your area. It just sort of depends on what you're dealing with, but it is a fungicide it's also insecticidal and mitocidal for that matter. And if you apply too much, it's also herbicidal. Uh, but the dose makes the poison. There are insecticidal agents like cyan which is another one of those sort of systemic insecticides you shouldn't be using. There's a product out uh, that's kind of new called um, uh, the Spear series. And it's actually, I guess you could call it a biopesticide too, but it's synthesized uh, Blue Mountains Funnelweb Spider Venom, which is pretty fascinating to me. And they uh, so they synthesized it, but they cleaved off the parts that affect mammals and only kept the parts that affect arthropods. And I think the uh, active ingredient of the Spear series is this Omega Kappa Venom peptide, which is just really, really cool to me. Um, so I thought I would add that as well, that these sort of new chemical agents Um, these new biological agents are coming out that I think will really help with the sort of um, uh, truncating of our uses of of noxious chemical agents. There's also mitocidal agents like bifenazate or hexithiazox or clofentazine, none of which you should be using in cannabis, but um, there's a lot of very common mitocides that are out there that people Uh, are familiar with in the agricultural sphere or they become familiar with with some research and they somehow acquire them and utilize them. So you just got to be really aware of this sort of a thing. And it happens more often than you think. Um, And then we have finally herbicidal agents like glyphosate or sodium chloride, regular table salt. Um, Both of these things, people will probably already know this, will definitely affect your plants negatively. I've already mentioned some cultural controls earlier, but to go over some, we have, uh, to put a name to it, psychrometrics, which is sort of that interaction between humidity and temperature. Um, So when people talk about like vapor pressure deficit and that sort of a thing, um, this is kind of what they're talking about to a degree. And evapotranspiration, when the water goes into the soil, goes up the plant, and releases through the stomata, you know, this physiological process that definitely has interaction with the room. And if you don't really know what that is, um, you can be, you can be on the, um, you can be behind the power curve with regards to certain fungal pathogens, for example, that are very sensitive to a change in temperature and humidity because that initiates the germination um, of the spores in a lot of cases. It's what they use to be able to tell that the situation is ripe for um, germination and it's not too dry or too wet. Your labor operating procedure is a cultural control, which I kind of mentioned earlier, but how you go about things, all of this affects your IPM in minute ways and in very large um, ways, of course. Your physical construction of your setup is also incredibly integral to how you go about your IPM. Obviously, if you're growing in a tent or if you're growing in a, um, like a small room in a residential area, those are going to have very um, specific differences. You might be doing multiple things at once even, or you're operating in a large facility or outdoors. This all matters. 
in addition to this, your biogeographic um, area matters as well. So where you are in the world is going to influence what pests you deal with uh, and at what frequency and year to year and season to season, what their uh, changes in population will be as well. And then of course you have hygiene maintenance, how you keep your area clean, um, do you keep, do you use a lot of bioremediation uh, efforts in an aquaponics setup? Of course, you have to keep things very hygienic and uh, you can't let things get into the water or think or allow things to foul. That's a very important aspect of aquaponics to consider because, and also if you keep the humid, the temperature too high, I'm sure people have already mentioned this or might be already aware of this, but water pathogens can become a huge problem if the water temperature uh, heightens. Do you have anything to say about that, Stephen? Oh yeah, it's a big problem we see here in, uh, in Oklahoma and in Texas and a lot of the southern aquaponic facilities. Um, one of the best ways we've found to mitigate that, and actually uh, uh, we, he's going to be on the panel tomorrow, someone who just installed one of these, uh, Bain Howard of Vertica, um, actually just installed a giant geothermal coil onto their main facility up in um, about two and a half hours from where I'm at. Um, and uh, what they do is they put these giant coils in the ground that circulates water through the system and then down underground, which bleeds it off into that 58 degree, 56 degree temperature and, and allows that, that heat to dissipate. Uh, and it's honestly the most the cost effective way to do it with the water temperature. Um, in terms of you don't have to have chillers, you don't have to have a ton of power, you can run it off of a solar panel and run it completely off grid um, and, and it doesn't cost you anything to run. Uh, and then you can also hybridize that with again doing a similar method with air exchange and doing GAT systems which I believe again uh, uh, Josh is talking about tomorrow. That's excellent, you would have great insight. Um, so let me continue. Genetic controls, I mentioned some genetic controls earlier. But to give you some specific names, we have um, RNAi, mediated crop protection, which is uh, RNA interference. And so that's when you use, or, so plants actually have RNAi naturally. Um, there, are, there are aspects of plant uh, physiological processes that allow them to silence DNA. And that can be very useful when pathogens use sort of similar tactics to override or suppress the plant's immune system. And of course, there are possible uh, avenues for utilizing this in an IPM perspective, but it's kind of a new um, sort of a discipline. So technologically, I don't think a lot of this will be out uh, very soon, but hopefully sooner rather than later, um, because it would be very targeted and you wouldn't be able to achieve this sort of targeted nature in this specific way um in in when using other techniques so there's a there's a lot of advantage to that and especially from an ecological or environmental perspective if you can sort of use the natural rna rnai uh, uh sort of sort of um, sources or if you can instill a particular kind of rnai um, to a plant through breeding or some other process uh, you can achieve this sort of level of, of deft effect You've also got general plant resistance. Now, I think it's really important to talk about the terminology of resistance. So a lot of people will have different definitions and I don't think there's a lot of like, there's no, there are a few like organizations that might define resistance um, or disciplines rather too, that will define these things differently. But for me, and um, I have a research report, or rather a recommendation from an organization that I can send to anyone who's curious about it. Um, but resistance is, so you have three kinds of resistance. You have tolerance, which is when a plant can still grow relatively well, uh, even though a pest is feeding on it, a particular species. And it's important to bring up that like tolerance and resistance and all of these words, they are only going to be really effective if you give some sort of um, qualifier. It doesn't, like, you can't just say resistant. It's resistant. Resistant to what? And, and, and to that degree, uh, is it resistant to all the different kinds of those things or only specific species or a specific isolate, for example? It's important to, to, to know because plants have various ways of defeating different kinds of threats. And 
if you know that it's resistant, you should know what confers that resistance in the plant if possible. And that's something that I'm excited to see more and more in cannabis. But tolerance is when a plant can more or less grow pretty well, even with um, some level of the, the pest. Resistance is when the, the pest actually has problems or is di it's difficult for the, for the pest to actually establish on the plant, more or less. And then immunity is actually when the, the particular organism that we're talking about cannot colonize the plant. There's something very inherent about the plant that just is just not possible um, for it to colonize. Maybe even extremely minimal colonization or something like this, but pretty much not at all. So there are some aspects of immunity where a plant is just simply not a suitable host. And that's like the most basic kind of immunity. It's just, they're just too different from what the organism or pathogen or whatever is used to interacting with. Then we have gene drives, which are um, a method of enhancing the inheritance of a preferred trait. Uh, through breeding, for example, um, you, can, uh, you can establish this effect where uh, it's essentially how we how resistance accrues uh, in various pest populations through natural selection. Mechanical controls, I'll go over this pretty briefly. We've got trapping, which is pretty self-explanatory, uh, putting up sticky cards or putting up some sort of an adhesive or possibly even using light traps or pheromone traps in order to um, kill the uh, organism, although a pheromone trap would kind of be like a chemical control and a, and a mechanical control, right? You can straight up remove the pest, which is oftentimes really helpful, especially if you notice that you only have one plant that's kind of colonized by like spider mites, or if you have a really pernicious pest that's very serious, like maybe hemp russet mite, for example, uh, it might be just the more strategically optimal choice to just bag that plant and destroy it because, um, and then maybe apply some sort of a, a preventative or prophylactic biocontrol agent or application spray or something like this. Because if the, if the infestation gets to be too much, you might uh, very quickly end up on the wrong side of the cost uh, benefit analysis with your crop. Um, you can use non-chemical sterilants. I already kind of mentioned uh, UV radiation does this, but um, boiling hot temperatures does this, desiccation does this. There are various ways that are not chemical that you can sterilize an area. And I'm excited to see better ways of people being able to do that in residential sectors as well as in commercial sectors. Um, you've also got various uh, ways of hand killing, uh, which can still be kind of useful, especially on a small scale, uh, but it's a lot less effective, of course, at large scale. And then I have a very, very basic uh, graphic here from um, uh, the Crop Protection Research Institute that showed that integrated pest management, at least in vegetable crops, um, is uh, really well, really great. You get about $19 for every $1 that's spent on it. And as far as cannabis control <laughs> concerned, I would say that you probably get quite a bit more money per dollar of investment. So it's very important that you prevent and uh, sort of become forewarned because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And if you have the sort of uh, resources that are, that are going to allow you to achieve that objective, like some of the videos I have on my YouTube channel or on Instagram, I'm very happy to help people with insect identification or... Um, various other sorts of tasks that are important to get you started. Um, it's very important to me that people are able to get access to cannabis and also um, good food and that sort of a thing. And if you can grow it yourself or if you're uh, getting it from somewhere else, you can at least assess and know how they're going about it. And then I have a few pests. Um, hopefully I'm good on time. Yeah. So, and after this, there's a Q&A, of course. Right, Stephen? so oh yeah yeah sorry about that so um the rice root aphids the first one that i want to start on um of course in an aquaponic setup where your roots are below uh there are some you know they're not a totally aquatic aphid they actually there's actually a sister species called the uh, water water lily aphid um and it is actually semi-aquatic so the rice root aphid also has some of that trait. It can definitely do well in like a hydroponic setup. It, it can definitely colonize a cannabis plant uh, and get at the stem and even parts of the roots that might be kind of 
out of the water somewhat, depending on how your setup is um, uh, made, I suppose. They're considered to be originally from Asia and possibly, perhaps probably in the Japanese archipelago. And they have a different kind of a life cycle um, where they have, where they sort of, they move from two different alternate host species, but in the West, in North America in particular, um, they don't tend to have this sort of normal life cycle. And that's probably because of not being in their native territory. A lot of aphids actually do this. There are two main groups of typical hosts. You have your grasses like wheat, sorghum, rice, obviously, rye, barley. And I find these kinds of plants often on people's properties growing kind of fairly. And if you're in a place where these grasses are grown uh, commercially or residentially, then you should really be watching out for the rice root aphid because many times I will do a site evaluation and I find that people dealing with the rice root aphid problem are um, the victims of the plants that they have on their property uh, hosting the rice root aphid, especially your uh, here stone fruits. You might have a plum tree that you never even realized or people say, oh yeah, this used to be a converted orchard, or this used to be people, this guy, you know, he used to grow, you know, various fruits on his property, and that's really great, right? And I say, yeah, it is really great, but also it can be really great for pests. So you just have to be aware of this fact, and uh, aphids in particular are really, really good about having multiple hosts, if they're generalists anyways. And then, um, just like all aphids, they, well, for the first two traits here, all aphids, for the most part, have telescoping generation, so they're born pregnant, and that makes them incredibly uh, fecund. Uh, maybe fecund isn't the right word because it's usually clonal offspring. So when they and they live birth usually, they don't lay eggs until it's the right season for them to do, and they produce a specific morph that has wings that can go out and do that, lay the eggs, overwinter, and then the nymphs can come out and recolonize the plants. Hopefully the plants were also successful, laid some seeds, and now the sprouts are coming out. That's uh, one way that that happens. You also have the production of honeydew. Aphids feed on the phloem sap channels of plants, and they've been doing this since before flowering plants ever existed. And they've gotten really good at taking a ton of sugar out of the phloem sap and using enzymes like sucrases and invertases um, and various other compounds that might be produced by their endosymbionts, which are bacteria that live in special cells. And they process all of the sugar and amino acids that are in the phloem. And they can't even do all of it at once because the turgor pressure between the phloem sap and their bodies is so different that they're basically just tapping this really uh, pressurized stream and just shunting it into their body. So they can't even get rid of all of it or process all of it at once uh, physically. And that's why they produce honeydew, which is a super concentrated sort of sugary exudate that uh, aphids or that uh, ants really like and a lot of other organisms like honeydew as well. And uh, you might find sooty molds that grow in the, in the honeydew as sort of a black, you know, molded looking thing. And it's not a direct uh, pathogen to cannabis or other plants, but it does use honeydew as a substrate. So you have to watch out for that. It's also a great way to find out if you have aphids or another sort of hemipterin that might uh, produce honeydew like leaf hoppers or plant hoppers or that kind of a thing. Um, and rice root aphids are somewhat water tolerant. I definitely see them in hydroponic setups especially well. And I have seen them in a couple of aquaponic setups as well, uh, specifically uh, deep water culture. Um, just some bionomic information. You can find this on my rice root aphid uh, pest primer video on YouTube. But basically, they don't do very well at temperatures greater than or approaching 35 degrees Celsius. Um, and I have here that a high temperature plus a RHPV infection could severely induce uh, lifespan problems. And that's because we might have a potential ally for uh, rice root aphid in the future, which is the Ropalosiphum patty virus. Ropalosiphum patty is a, another um, aphid species, is the bird cherry oat aphid. And this virus is known to infect many kinds of aphids, and it actually can exist in plants systemically. 
It doesn't cause problems for the plant and it lasts in, in some plants anyways that's been tested in for about two weeks. And what's really crazy about this is that it doesn't outright kill the aphid, I suppose, but it does infect their ribosomes and it uh, heavily decreases their longevity and also their ability to propagate, which are two things that aphids really have going for them physiologically. So it's possible that this um, virus might be colonizable in other plants and we might be able to take advantage of it in the future. We've also got septoria cannabis, which is um, a leaf spotting disease pathogen. There are actually very many septoria out there, uh, but this is one example of what the um, pathogen can look like on cannabis in particular. You see sort of like brown spotting. You might even see some hyphae growing out of the necrotic tissue that's sort of died before the brown spotting happens because of the dry um, circular uh, infection points that it makes. Um, Septori cannabis infects cannabis in specific, but it's, I say that with a caveat because Septoria is one of those pathogens, one of those fungal pathogens that uh, can hyper-specialize. And so you might, I mean, it's kind of hard to say whether something's a species or a subspecies at that point, if you know what I mean. I've, I've seen three different distinct expressions of septoria and one, one thing I think I've noticed that uh, I, want, I just wanted to add to this when it, the early infection is it often really looks like water spotting uh, like you, you've got water on it during a hot day. Um, that's how almost always with all the different ones it starts to look like and you go and you yell at the guy who was watering. Sorry about the beeping in the back but um, we go and you yell at the guy who's watering and uh, and then, you know, the next day it's further up the plant and you know he didn't do it. And then you realize, oh, that's not the problem I had. That's an excellent point to make, actually, because it's very true. It does look like water spotting. I've also had people misdiagnose this as, understandably, chemical burn from like a spray application or something. Or if they're not used to seeing what that kind of looks like, um, they might be afraid that they've burned their plants or that's light burn or something like this. But the very circular nature of the... Um, of the infection is sort of a diagnostic characteristic that can help you achieve um, that level of identification. Uh, and I'll stress again that like you might not necessarily know whether it's septoria cannabis in particular, but this is the one of the main species um, and it's, there's a reason why it's got the cannabis species epithet attached to it. But certainly other uh, septoria could infect cannabis and like uh, Stephen was saying. We've also got the darkwing fungus gnats, which are part of the Bredigia genus. Um, this is actually a, uh, a frame from my pest primer on the on the fungus gnats, in particular the darkwing and fungus gnats. Uh, this on the upper left is an example of what the fungus gnat looks like in adult. You might also be familiar with the larvae in the at the bottom there. Uh, they tend to, one way you can tell them from other kind of fly larvae is that they have a black head capsule and also other worm-like things that you might find in your soil like pot worms or nematodes are very small as well. But um, fungus gnat larvae have this sort of characteristic cream-colored larvae uh, or larval color. Um, they've got the black head capsule and despite their name fungus gnat, they don't necessarily just feed on fungus. In fact, they can feed on plant tissue just as easily as they can feed on fungal tissue. So don't think, because I've definitely run into people who've had this interpretation of the name, that they are specific to fungi or that it means that you have fungal, um, uh, that you have some sort of like fungal population. You probably have some, but that you have a major one or a problematic level of fungi in your soil. That's not necessarily the case. Although it could very well become after the fact because fungus gnats can vector various pathogens and Botrytis cinerea is one of them and it's definitely a fungus and you can also get Fusarium solani. This is an example of um, a Fusarium solani on the right that was uh, vectored by fungus gnats in peas. Um, I also have to tell you about the Legisclerosis virus. I've talked to Stephen a little bit about this too. Um, but uh, recently it was documented in the authorized farms in Israel. Currently it is incurable. Um, usually it often, like its name implies, infects lettuce, but also many other plants. And those plants are usually not worth, because they're annuals, um, sort of 
the process that we have to affect viruses, which is typically through tissue culturing and that sort of a thing. So usually if you get this pathogen, which is vectored by the uh, silverleaf whitefly, Vimesia tabasi, which you can see in the upper right here, um, at that point, you kind of are at a loss. And that's kind of just the unfortunate reality at this point. Uh, it's very, very difficult to conventionally treat viruses. And although there might be some ways in the future that are much more economical and democratized, it's just not the case at the moment for the vast majority of cases, for a lot of pathogens for that matter, but viruses in particular. And that's due to the way that they systemically infect plants. One major problem with LCV in particular is that because it's vectored by this super vector of over 180 plus viruses, this silverleaf whitefly, um, it also uh, the host uh, causes a yellowing when it feeds on leaves a lot of the time. Not all the time, but it can. So you don't really necessarily know because the main symptom of Leishclerosis virus is chlorosis that you're actually going to, that you're actually dealing with that chlorosis problem. It's only after much of the plant has become chlorotic that you might be more sure. But at that point, uh, you probably haven't achieved control. And that would be a very sad thing to happen. And you can see some diagrams of uh, cannabis uh, in this chlorotic state. Now, just because you see chlorosis doesn't mean that you have the LCV, uh, but there are places where you might be able to test. I believe medicinal genomics uh, has a test for LCV as well as other cannabis viruses. I think also B. curly top virus as well, which was also recently documented in. Um, uh, the Midwest, particularly Colorado, and probably is in other places too, unreported. No, Joshua also... Josh Steen documented it in Oregon last year. That's right. I keep forgetting that that point. I usually remember the Colorado example. Uh, is there anywhere else that you can think of? Uh, I've seen it this year in Oklahoma, or what I think it is, but I have I don't have testing for it. But it looks ex identical to what I saw in Oregon last year. Yeah, you heard it here first, guys. Like the, that's a lot of different places. All Israel to, uh, well, also I should say this: LCV is thought to originate in southwestern California. So that's another place. So if you're like me and you live in southwestern California, you should be aware of that. The creamy viruses in general are thought of as um, coming from this like southwestern North America uh, area. Ironically, the silverleaf whitefly is considered to probably have originated in India based on a bunch of uh, parasitoid wasps that also uh, seem to specialize on whitefly. And if that's the case, those are two totally different biogeographic areas. So, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder. Well, one other thing I wanted to add about the lettuce chlorosis virus is um, it's one big reason why you shouldn't be doing heavy lettuce production in the exact same system as your cannabis. You want to make sure you're running them in separate um, sump tanks, separate fish tanks. Um, there's two aquaponic facilities that were DWC facilities uh, that I've observed what we believe was lettuce chlorosis virus. This was before there was testing, but all the symptoms were there and it sure as heck looked like it was on the lettuce. Um, and uh, the lettuce stuff is heavily documented. So um, we were, you know, again, on two separate grows, we were able to um, uh, basically wipe everything out uh, and then do a um, uh, lactobacillus treatment and uh, just let it sit for a couple of weeks with nothing in it and, and plant it and didn't have that reoccurrence. Um, again, there, there, we didn't observe any white fly. I'm not saying they weren't there or there wasn't some other insect vector that could have also potentially done it, but it wasn't observed. So, Yeah, I mean, these sorts of reports are likely to, to come up. And uh, now, embarrassingly, I actually forgot that we had had this conversation in the moment, but that's true. And that's one of the reasons why I really like to get um, insight from Stephen here, because that was a really great conversation that we had about that uh, previously. Um, but yeah, LCV interactions are, are very likely to continue to propagate as cannabis kind of um, continues to languish in that regard. Many people are just unaware of it and the way that people share clones and other sorts of tissue is going to have that effect. So the Spidoptera are the armyworms. They are a genus of moths 
they're probably not the worst genus of moths to get into cannabis, but they are one that I feel like people don't hear about a lot. So I wanted to focus on them a bit here. Um, other moths that people are dealing with more so are probably the tobacco budworm moth and the uh, European corn borer and the um, corn earworm all of which are very well known for boring into the flower bud um, and then they defecate in the flower bud and then the flower bud becomes moldy or also the wounds could transfer the uh, various pathogens like botrytis and other sorts of fungi that just ruin the product at the end. Um, these armyworms do not do that uh, to that degree. They are not really typically um, flower uh, borers or even stem borers like the hemp stem uh, borer but uh, they do constitute a problem because they are great defoliators and like all of the lepidoptera the thing that they do really well is they grow rapidly and they eat a lot and they continuously eat in fact caterpillars if they don't get enough food will have major problems because they're literally built to constantly eat unless they have some specific species adaptation that allows them to not do that. Uh, most caterpillars have a very quick life cycle of a couple of weeks, uh, but some, caterpillar, some caterpillars take like multiple years to come to adulthood, believe it or not, but uh, you won't be dealing with those with cannabis. Here I have two Spidoptera, uh, Spidoptera prefica, which is the western yellow striped armyworm, and Spidoptera frugiperda is the fall armyworm, and they're both pretty common uh, in North America, uh, especially in the west um, of North America, and this is about the season you'd probably be seeing them. In fact, I took this picture on the left um, six days ago. So you can see that, uh, and also for an example, you can see what the frass of a caterpillar of this size constitutes. And this was after I let this uh, specimen feed on about two, like really, really small dandelion leaves. Um, and this was after it actually, um, I was doing a, a test because it had actually vacated its entire uh, digestive tract already before I gave it the food. So I wanted to test how much uh, volume uh, you got uh, going in and coming out. And that's actually quite a bit. So even a very, very little bit of um, feeding can cause a large amount of frass to come out the other end and uh, ruin your flower. Um, yeah, and they developed about 18 million years ago. And they tend to feed on your legumes and your beans and that sort of a thing, the fabaceae. Uh, your peppers and tomatoes and uh, tobacco and that sort of a thing, your solanaceae, and also the mallows, which are in the mulvaceae. So that's just uh, sort of an example of what they feed on. They're generalists, they'll feed on woody plants and herbaceous grasses as well. And here we even have an example of some of their adaptations. There's a diagram from a research report, which I didn't cite, unfortunately, dang. But if you want the citation, I'm happy to give you the research report. Um, and uh, yeah, so you have, you can see how they've evolved over time and uh, you have two major types, a type that specializes on grasses because of their sort of tough silicate uh, leaves um, and also those on woody uh, herbaceous plants, dicots and monocots, um, essentially respectively. And that's it uh, for this presentation. I actually wanted to give a pretty good amount of time for Q&A. But again, my name is Matthew Gates. Xenthanol Consulting is how I operate. Uh, you can find me at Syncangel on Instagram and Twitter, and also at Xenthanol, which is the same channel that I will be interacting with in the chat. Um, yeah, so hope that was illuminating. And if you have any more questions, if you want me to share any research, or if you want to check out some of the research on my YouTube channel, please feel free. All right, uh, we got a ton of questions. That was a really awesome presentation. Um, uh, I guess first off, uh, can you please cover, go over a Septoria a little bit more? I've been getting crushed by it here in Michigan a few years now. I've sprayed just about everything except fungicides like copper sulfate. Um, uh, do you want to touch on that and then I can touch on what I found works here in Oklahoma? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found that uh, a simple suffocant like uh, Sofoil X was pretty useful as well. Um, I'm, I'm sad to hear that this person is having so much difficulty with it uh, because it can be kind of pernicious and 
Um, I do have trouble with controlling it if it's already kind of become a huge problem. That's why crop scouting is such an issue or such an important aspect. If it's a very small um, uh, infection, then you can kind of control it really quickly with a spray. But I feel like uh, it becomes more and more arduous as it multiplies in the crop. Awesome. Sorry about that. A little bit of a delay there. Um, all right. What other questions? Oh, so what I found for Septoria is uh, when I first uh, see the first sign of it, I just hit it with a, a Bactillus pomilus, uh, then a Bactillus subtilis, and then a, a good Lactobacillus uh, kind of on a rotation every two or three days, hitting them with one after another, and then coming in with a good liquid IMO uh, to, uh, to kind of give it the, the competitors and uh, a new fresh inoculation that that particular procedure you know you repeat that twice and um, it seems to you know hit it pretty much out of the park here in in Oklahoma you do have to catch it early uh, once it's progressed to a certain point it those plants pretty much are gone and you can't really reverse it once it's past you know progressed beyond more than you know 25 to 30 percent of the plant it can be really hard to reverse after that yeah, don't forget in some of those situations too to not just replace your plants, but a lot of times replace the soil that you're working with or at least treat it. Um, you know, too many times I've seen people will go through and clean their entire grow and swap everything out and then reuse the same likely infected soil. So, uh, you know, just remember to uh, also consider that in your cleaning process if you are going to pull something out or start over if something has gone too far. Don't, uh, don't chew out on the soil. Make sure you at least treat it if you're going to reuse it. I definitely agree with those two things, especially the biopesticide of uh, Bacillus subtilis. Yeah, those are those are really good. Uh, the best one I found out there currently is a product called Cease. I don't know if you have a, a different one that you're a fan of. I like Cease myself. Yeah, I found the best combo in general for, for biocontrols for mold is, is alternating cease and, and sonata, which is the Bactillus pomilus. Seems to work really well. Um, I'm trying to find the other questions. There was like five questions and now I can't find them here. Okay, um, maple trees have septoria. Uh, it doesn't seem to bother the trees, but I've wondered, should I spray the trees uh, if um, to protect my cannabis? I would say absolutely. That's definitely part of your sort of biosecurity assessment. Um, like I was saying for rice root aphid and other pests, it's very possible that plants on your property can, or plants that are very, that are just outside of your property, uh, almost more annoyingly, uh, can cause problems for you by harboring pests and pathogens. Alrighty. Another question, uh, what beneficials are safe to use in flower? Oh, say that again. What beneficial insects are safe to use in flower? Yeah, sorry, I, I got a little bit of a garbled message. Um, but it's a good question. I like to use, um, well, so when you, when you apply biocontrol agents, some biocontrol agents, depending on from whom you're getting them um, and what kind of product you're getting, they might have like filler. And so I just feel like it's very important that people are aware that they shouldn't just dump that onto their flower material. A lot of people kind of intuitively get this, but I just want to say it uh, just out of the gate. Sometimes that filler is vermiculite. Sometimes that filler is bran. Sometimes that filler is buckwheat. Um, and sometimes the filler also has a bunch of frass from the organisms living in the filler, uh, you know, through their shipment process. Um, biocontrol agents like predatory mites like Amblyceus swirsky, Neocilis cucumris, Phytocilis persimilis, uh, Californicus, or Neocilis californicus. Um, your predatory, your peristoid wasps are generally going to be fine, um, and your predatory flies will be too. Um, lacewing larvae, uh, that sort of a thing. I generally find that most biocontrols are fine to use in flower. The ones that I am reticent to use are typically ones that are part of a biopesticidal sort of application um, process. Those are the things that, because I'm never, oh, I'm not always sure, and every location is different. 
about what the what the inert ingredients are, whether that's going to have a problem. Is there an enhancer they don't mention, like like piperinol butoxide and pyrethrin products, for example? That kind of a thing just sort of scares me from a regulatory uh, and compliance perspective. Oh, what a great answer. Um, we have another question is, uh, have you had any experience with a product called Nucum? And uh, does it work? Yes, and yes, that's been my experience. But um, I don't remember the exact ingredients off the top of my head. Uh, do you, Stephen? It's a enzyme uh, spray. So it's a you know, yeast to produce the enzyme and a little bit of citric acid. And I want to say like potassium silicate or something like that. Or that's some that's sorbate. I think it's similar to Dr. Zymes uh, for the uh -huh. most part. Yeah, I definitely remember the name, but I didn't remember the active ingredient. And I like to make sure that that gets said so that people who are thinking about using it kind of already know that and what they're looking for. They might have a similar product for a lower price point or a different formulation. Actually, on that note, I just want to say that um, pesticide formulation matters a lot, uh, both in its efficacy, but also just like when you're considering, if you see two products and the active ingredient is the same and the amount is the same, um, I, one of the things I learned early for me in agriculture is that that is not necessarily the same product and how it's formulated and the physical properties of it and any sort of like uh, you know, minutia in that process that you're not privy to could have a totally different um, effect in crop, uh, both a positive one or a negative one. So it's just really important that you don't think that all the different, uh, you know, potassium bicarbonate products are the same or something like this, or, or, or that all enzymatic products are going to act exactly the same. Uh, I think a great example of this is Bavaria bassania. Uh, each of the strains, uh, Botanic Guard, uh, that strain seems to infect insects uh, at a different rate than Bioseries and different species. Uh, Bioseries seems to work better than, than Botanic Guard and vice versa, uh, depending on the exact target insect. So, um, you know, even incorporating the same, uh, the same species but different strains as part of your rotation can make a big difference and especially prevention. That's absolutely true. The, just as a fun fact, um, in Botanigard, there's a Bouveria bassiana isolate GHA. And uh, I've found that the GHA actually stands for grasshopper active. And the first Bouveria bassiana, if I remember correctly, I think I was reading some patents on it. And I think that it was first isolated from a cucumber beetle, Diabrotica diabrotica. And, uh, but they were trying to find a pathogen for uh, grasshoppers and that sort of a thing. And I'm not saying that it doesn't work on other things. That's not why I bring it up. I just bring it up because like it's a nice, it's a neat holdover and it's a fun fact, I guess. <laughs> but you're right. There are definitely isolates that affect various other um, uh, pest targets. And I'm all for like a more target isolate because from an environmental standpoint, an ecological standpoint, um, my major caveat to Bouveri Bassiano, which I love to use, is that it's a broad spectrum biocontrol agent in a manner of speaking. So being able to curtail that broad spectrum nature from an environmentalist perspective to like keep it from affecting things you don't want it to is something I advocate for. Do you want to touch on on successful grasshopper stuff? I have some cool stuff I was working on in Africa, but uh, I, I know that there's Nolo bait as a popular one that people use for a biocontrol for, for grasshoppers. What have you found that works well for uh, grasshoppers and, and um, you know, the like? Actually, to be honest, uh, Bouveri Bassiana is one of the ones that I found to have the most effect for me personally, and also the thing that you just mentioned as well. Um, not to like, I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of experience with treating grasshoppers in particular. Um, I tend to like to sort of uh, advocate for and utilize um, physical barriers, just like at a greater degree. Uh, but those two intimate pathogens are really nice to so use in combination and in combination with the physical controls. I find that that combination works pretty effectively for a lot of people if it's implemented early enough. 
All right. Um, someone else asked, uh, do you agree that plants with high bricks levels are more pest resistant? They can be, but not necessarily just because of the bricks, because the bricks is the sugar dissolved sugar content. And that will inform you of a lot of things about the physiology of a plant, like, for example, how much sugar is in it, but also maybe its photosynthetic rate. Um, and so if a plant is at a higher photosynthetic rate, then you can sort of make the sort of assumption that ostensibly that plant is probably sort of physiologically doing good, um, or at least it's pumping out a lot of the, the food that it's trying to get from photosynthesis. But then, uh, you know, whether or not that translates to conferring resistance, because like I said, um, different, so plants and various plants have different ways of combating uh, pests and pathogens in different ways. And so how, so like how that happens, you know, maybe that pathogen still has a great way to exploit susceptibility genes inherent in the genome of the plant, you know the BRICS levels will have nothing to do with this. It won't really matter if the plant has a like crippling exploitation that the pathogen can use or a pest for that matter that's got some sort of behavioral or functional physiological um, uh, way of mediating that. But generally speaking, a plant that's producing a lot of sugars is probably on its way to like doing well for what it is, if that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think the other thing too is, you know, if a plant's got a high bricks level, it's just, it's, it's rocking, it's healthy, you know, its immune system is, is at peak, uh, you know, peak production and, and, you know, peak ability to, to produce those extra ter terpenes and flavonoids and other things that the plant uses to defend itself. So, um, you know, I think that's also the reason why when people think of that's, that's probably more the reason of, of what's actually happening with those high bricks level. It's not even, it's not the bricks itself is doing it. It's just, it's an indicator that the plant is just happy and as can be and, and is capable of defending itself. Yeah, I think that's a great way to interpret that. Um, some, I, I have heard some people say that uh, like the sugars will be too much for the insect and that the insect won't be able to feed on the plant because of the high sugar content. And I understand, I mean, from my own experience and also from the research that I'm familiar with, the literature on subject, like insects adapted, or the herbivorous ones anyways, they like, they adapted to an herbivore lifestyle. Carbohydrates from sh plants in the form of particularly sucrose is incredibly important. Um, aphids and other hemiptera can't get enough of the stuff. And uh, when insects do break down those sugars in their bodies, uh, they convert it to trehalose, which is a much more inert sugar, and it keeps the osmotic pressure down. So the insect can, produce, can have tons of this sugar sort of moving around in its open hemolymph, sort of a circulatory system, unlike ours, which has vessels. And um, those sort of sugars, the trehalose, can be rapidly utilized by the plant's physiology, particularly when it comes to flight, which this is one reason why a lot of flying insects like to feed on sugary substances because it's very energetic, right? It's a great resource for that. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I was going to touch on that I, I, we, we kind of got a little bit sidetracked on, um, I uh, had real good luck with grasshoppers where we were collecting them uh, in Africa and collecting a bunch of the grasshoppers and um, uh, putting them into a pile and then mixing them with insect frass and then mixing them with rice and doing an, uh, an IMO collection, indigenous microorganism collection, um, and, and then utilizing that into a, a, an IMO2 and then turning that into a liquid IMO to inoculate the, the plants with naturally occurring um, insects that feed on the, the chitinase and, and the, you know, on those insects locally. So that can be a great way to target your local insects, you know, collect them and uh, mix them with some extra insect frass, throw them in your IMO collection and, and, and actually, you know, go out and try to collect and target those. It can be a great way to, you know, a great way to start, start on your own uh, journey in that direction if you're looking to do those types of biocontrols. Alrighty, well, uh, 
looks like we're about to transition here. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention, Matt, before we uh, wrap up? Um, no, not really. Just to say that um, as sort of a community service, I really would appreciate if people are able to um, use me as a resource. So essentially, if you have uh, identification issues, if you find that there is a pest you don't know, or that you uh, need some help with something, please feel free to reach out to me. It's very important to me that I'm able to utilize this information. It fulfills me. It helps achieve an objective for um, biosecurity. Um, essentially, I look at my work as having this sort of uh, prophylactic effect for as many people as possible. It does, and it all helps us all. The better we know about IPM in general, so. Don't hesitate to reach out if you are having issues, especially in this time where supply lines are difficult to um, ascertain. Um, situations in various parts of North America and other parts of the world are in great stress, both environmentally and biologically. So it's just very important to me to help as many people as possible uh, within that context. Awesome. Yeah, and, and be sure if you do send him stuff, be sure you send the, the location as much as you can. Uh, it helps him ID the insects as well. Alrighty. Well, much appreciated, and uh, and we look forward to uh, to talking to you again soon. Uh, do you want to mention your podcast too before we you sign off? That is a pretty good idea. So I and so in regards to like questions and things, one on my YouTube channel, um, Zenthanol. I have an FAQ, an IPM FAQ series I do every month. So you can send me uh, questions on my uh, Twitter and social media and Instagram and also on YouTube. And I'll collect all those questions and I'll answer them in the video series. I also have the Cheap Home Grow podcast, which Spartan Grown is on here as well, um, and various other people. Uh, I do that every Sunday on the Cheap Home Grow, uh, growing with my fellow growers. And then I've also recently been on a podcast with Eagle Gardens, who is also in the chat right now, uh, episode 181, and we talked about IPM and some of my background. So if you're curious about that, um, you can check me out there too. Wonderful. All righty. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it.